Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Christianity Today and Kairos Partnerships. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Doug Moister. I am the host of the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined by Bob Hyatt. Uh, really excited about the interview that we have coming up. Uh, but before we jump into that, just wanted to create uh, just a few moments just to ask a couple of questions and leave some time and space for reflection. And the first question is this, and I want you to just sit with it and answer it however you need to. How are you showing up today? And I ask this question because sometimes I don't think we actually pause long enough to recognize how we're coming to the day that we have ahead of us. To actually, as uh, to pay attention to the, the parts of us that may be clamoring for attention to spend a minute to name the things that are there and present. Maybe they're really good things. Maybe they're hard things. But just to spend a moment to actually say out loud where you are, journal out, journal on paper where you are, how you're coming into the day. And the second question is, is, is just as simple. What do you desire most today? I think often as pastors and as leaders in the church, uh, many times our desires are really uh, dictated to us by what we need in our church. But when I'm not asking about the church, I'm not asking about uh, what your church needs or, or, or what your family needs or anything like that, but what is it that you desire today? Spend a few minutes, say it out loud, journal it down. But as you do this, as you think about how you're showing up and what you desire, I want you to bring both of those before God this morning. And just allow him to speak into those spaces, into those pieces of life, into the, the, the parts, the unfinished parts of you that may have come out. And just notice the way that God is caring for you, the way that he's ministering to you in that, the way that, the way that he may be rebuking you or correcting you or loving you deeply. Because I think all of this is important for pastors to continue to care for their own souls. This is a practice that I've adopted. Uh, it's been over a year of just spending time with those two questions in the morning daily. And I can tell you, those two questions have really helped me to discover God's quiet voice in my life, but also to begin to understand the things that really make me tick, that really the longings that are coming out of me that I need to bring before God and allow Him space and time and opportunity to speak or just to be silent and be present with me. Um, but brothers and sisters, we have a fantastic interview coming up today. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a blessing. There's a lot of really unique things that, that, that our guest is going to talk about. And, and much of it is, is around how we can understand the Jewishness of Jesus and how that, the implications that that has on our churches and what it may look like even to heal the schism between Judaism and Christianity. And so we hope you enjoy this podcast. I also hope uh, and pray that you are resting well this summer, that you are having opportunity to take long walks or bike rides or date your spouse or spend more time with your kids or just be with friends and family uh, in ways that you normally don't get to. And so we hope that this podcast is an encouragement and it continues to encourage your souls for the weeks to come. Our guest today is Jennifer Rosner. 
She is an affiliate assistant professor of systematic theology at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, where she completed her PhD on the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. She's the author of Healing the Schism and the co-author of At the Foot of the Mountain. She and her family live in Northern California. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Jen Rosman. Hey, we are here with Jen Rosner, who is the author of Finding Messiah, A Journey into the Jewishness of the Gospel. Jen, thanks for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. No problem. You you have a, a, a fascinating story. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? And Yeah, yeah, it's a great place to start. I was raised in Northern California in a Jewish home. Both of my parents are Jewish, were raised in the Jewish community in Los Angeles. And then they moved to Lake Tahoe, where I was born and raised when they got married. And so I was raised um, with a with a fairly strong sense of Jewish identity, but not much Jewish community outside of the home. Mm. And, you know, for my dad, it was very important to instill in us like a, a strong belief in God that for him was a bit disconnected from Judaism, because in his upbringing, um, he got a bit jaded towards what he perceived as some hypocrisy and shallowness within the Jewish community in Los Angeles. And my mom was a little bit the opposite. She was very invested in Jewish culture, Jewish, um, you know, rhythms and and holidays and life cycle events. Um, but but um, for her, it was a little bit less connected to spirituality. Uh, and so that was my upbringing. And I went off to college at a large public state school. Uh, where, you know, God was just sort of on the move. And so, for example, the Campus Crusade at my college, which I guess is now called Crew, uh, went from 30 people to 500 people in a wow. five-year period. And that's when I was there. So it was like a, it was a secular school, but literally all of my friends were Christians. Hmm. Um, and it was the first time I ever like encountered the person of Jesus, which is remarkable to me because I had Christian friends uh, growing up, but I never like heard the gospel. And so I was a political science major in college, and I was planning to go on to law school. And 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 very unexpectedly, my undergraduate years became a time of really spiritually searching, um, and kind of wrestling with God kind of questions. And I went to the, um, the Hillel group, which is the Jewish campus, you know, group, and they just were not um, theologically oriented. It was more of like a cultural Judaism kind of crowd. And literally, because I didn't like being the only kid in the dorms on a Sunday morning, I started tagging along with my roommate um, to an evangelical church and later to a vineyard church plant. And I started, you know, attending campus crusade meetings. And, and so really, my undergraduate years became a time of, of, of searching. And, you know, for all of my electives, I took religion classes. And uh, the last year that I was in college was um, just a really formative year for me. And I ended up coming to a place of faith in Jesus. And for me, that just reoriented my entire trajectory. Mm. I, I was like, all in, like I scrapped my plans to go to law school, I went to divinity school instead. Mm. Uh, so I went to Yale Divinity School after finishing my undergraduate to pursue an MDiv. And at the time, I didn't know any Jewish followers of Jesus. All the Jews that I knew were pretty secular, and I had no model for what it meant to be Jewish and follow Jesus. And so I just sort of put the Judaism piece on the shelf, um, and I went into the Christian world, and I sort of bounced around in different Christian denominations. And, um, and then interestingly, through a series of circumstances during my MDiv program at Yale, the Jewish piece resurfaced, and I realized that I had kind of left something behind, that I had left a piece of myself behind. Mm. 
And so I finished uh, my MDiv. I came back to California to pursue my PhD at Fuller Seminary. And it was during my time at Fuller that this set of questions related to Judaism and faith in Jesus, the, the historical relationship between Judaism and Christianity really came to the fore. Uh, and my dissertation, which was later published as my first book called Healing the Schism, just became like a, a structured way for me to wrestle through these identity questions that were that were very central for me. Mm. And, and then that sort of just set the trajectory for, for really my life ever since. So I finished my PhD. I began teaching um, at Fuller and a few other institutions. Um, and this has just become kind of my wheelhouse is this space between Judaism and Christianity and, and the theological questions and tensions related to that the historical issues that have led us to the point where we are today. Um, and then, I mean, just to sort of finish the story, I took a trip with a friend to Israel uh, after I finished my PhD and I was set up with someone who would turn out to be my husband on that trip. Oh, wow. Right. So he, um, so I now identify as a Messianic Jew. My husband is a Messianic Jew who was raised in the American Messianic Jewish mm -hmm. movement and then made Aliyah, like immigrated to Israel after he finished high school. So he had already been living there for a little over 10 years. By the time we met, we dated long distance uh, for a year, got married, spent the first two years of our marriage in Israel, and then sort of very unexpectedly relocated back to my hometown where we now live uh, in Northern California. And I, you know, wow. write and teach on these kinds of issues. And Finding Messiah is, um, it's my first like sort of non-academic book, although maybe it's a bit academic for some. And it also interweaves bits of this story that I've just shared with you, which has really been my, um, again, has led me into this set of questions that I'm wrestling with mm. in the book. So I, I'm really interested by um, just this entire journey, because my, my sense is there had to be some really, or my sense, and maybe this isn't true, but I wonder if there were some conflicting feelings in the midst of making that sort of that that discovery throughout, you know, talking about the historical stuff and the, the theological implications and all of that. So can you take us into some of the feelings and emotions and tensions that were that were present mm -hmm. within your own soul in the midst of the journey? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And 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 as I write about in the book, I mean, I I, I tell the story now like it was all smooth and one <laughs> thing just led to the next. And like that is not the case. I mean, this story has really been a bit of a crucible for me. And, and again, it looks different in different chapters. So, you know, when I was in college, I had a couple friends who, who sort of noted that it was, you know, um, special or something that I was Jewish and they would be like, Oh my gosh, the chosen people, God's 140, you know, God's chosen people, 144,000. And I was like, Whoa, like, I just did not want to be singled out as the one who was different. I think at that time, like, finding Christ and, and, and entering a relationship with Christ was so meaningful to me. And, and there was just such a sense that my Judaism had no place in that, you know, and this mm. is how I ended up putting it on the shelf. Like I just wanted to be a Christian, like all my friends were Christians um, and it worked for a time and then it stopped working, you know, and, and, and again, through a, a set of circumstances during my MDiv program. Um, and I might say like, like, circumstances that I resisted to some extent, like, no, like, I don't, I don't want to be different. I don't want to wade into this set of issues. I just want to like, you know, be a Christian and, and follow God and, and do my thing. And it was just unrelenting, you know, like just this sense of um, uh, like this bifurcated identity that could no longer quite endure in the same way. 
Um, and, and, and I mean, the only way I can describe it as this, it was this Jewish piece just sort of clamoring for attention, uh, which, which made, which, which increasingly I think made sense to me as I learned more about like Jewish peoplehood, you know, like this is, and, and, and maybe we could translate this to other identity markers as well, but it was just something that sort of lived in me in a certain way that I could try to ignore and it, and it wouldn't be ignored. And so, um, once I came back to California for my PhD, um, it was hard. I mean, it was, I almost dropped out of my PhD program the first year. Mm. And uh, my introduction to the Messianic Jewish movement was very rocky. And, and it wasn't really something I wanted to be a part of. And mm. I think that really changed when I was introduced to Mark Kinzer, who's probably like the world's leading Messianic Jewish theologian. And I was introduced to him my first or my second year of my doctoral program. And he very quickly kind of took me under his wing. He has, he has like a special passion for kind of shepherding Messianic Jewish intellectuals or up and coming intellectuals. Mm. That's what he is. And that's what the Messianic Jewish, Jewish movement needs in, in, in some sense. And so th I think that really changed everything because I had like an anchor in this movement that can be a little crazy. You know, I mean, it's kind of new. It's, it's a bit of an identity crisis in and of itself. It's trying to sort of bridge these two historical religions that have spent a lot of time defining themselves in mutual exclusion from one another. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, um, you know, both communities, Judaism and Christianity don't quite know what to do with Messianic Jews. And so I tell stories in the books of being at these, you know, Jewish Christian dialogue events where, you know, I wasn't so welcome all the time. Hmm. And so I, I think that kind of meeting Mark Kinzer and then this community that he has increasingly kind of invited me into ever since then has just been so key for me, um, fighting a sense of just really like existential isolation and loneliness, trying to live in between these two worlds that in some sense don't want a lot to do with each other. Hmm. Hmm. What was it like reading the Gospels for the first time? Hmm. That Hmm. that's as you're talking about it i'm just thinking you know i i can't remember reading the gospels for the first hmm. time it was just always a part of my story mm -hmm. but as someone who came to it later in life with a particular uh knowing the old testament having that rootedness in a in a jewish identity i'm just i'm really curious as to what that was like for you <laughs> yeah it's a good question i mean i didn't have i wasn't raised in a really like Bible centered home. So I, so I, I wasn't raised like reading the old Testament or knowing much about it. I was raised much more again with Jewish culture and Jewish yeah. holidays, which are biblically based, but that connection was not forefront for me. Um, and so I would say that my, my first encounter with the gospels, very interestingly was sort of mediated by these different figures in my life, like pastors or friends, or, you know, these camp, these speakers at Campus Crusade. And, you know, there was one speaker in particular, I remember going to like Wednesday night Campus Crusade meetings or whatever. And I was always just like sort of hanging on his words because he was such a gifted speaker. Um, and so I think it was that more than just sort of sitting and reading the text. Um, it was mm. these, you know, pastors and Campus Crusade leaders that, 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 that opened up that world mm. to me. Um, and that that made Jesus a real like person to me mm. in a way that I don't think I, at least not at that point, ever encountered by just reading the text. It was like a, a text that was mediated to me through these different ministry settings, um, which I think is really significant in some sense. You know, it was partially those settings and the community that I experienced there and the kind of commitment to 
this 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 sort of life of meaning and purpose that was oriented around a certain set of truths like that was mm. that was i would say looking back more uh more of what was compelling to me than sort of the the scriptures themselves that that would grow and in fact after i finished my undergrad i took a year off before going to yale and i like read through the entire bible for the first time and i read all mm. these theology books anything i could get my hands on um, and I would say that's probably where the, the the text itself started to come more alive to me. But at least initially, it was much more, you know, hearing sermons and hearing and and and, and being yeah. at these campus crusade events. Uh, that was what really sort of gripped me and struck me. As you well, as you read through the Gospels now, mm -hmm. uh, and having read the entirety of Scripture and and really studied this, what are some things that, uh, as you look at those Gospel accounts, that that Christians without a uh, a Jewish background might miss or mm -hmm. even worse might misunderstand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And again, this is something I write about in the book. I think that there's a lot that, that can very easily be missed. And what's unfortunate is that I think in some ways we're set up to miss them. So for example, mm -hmm. there's, there's a number of translation issues that almost like intentionally obscure Jesus's connection to Judaism. So I talk in the book about this passage in Matthew 9. It's kind of a curious passage where, you know, Jesus is going to heal the synagogue leader's daughter and he get, the, the narrative sort of gets interrupted by this other narrative of the woman with the problem mm -hmm. of bleeding, which is like euphemistic language for genital discharge, which is like at the heart of the Jew, of, of the of Old Testament ritual purity system. And 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 it and and what the text often says in English translations is that she reaches out and touches like you know, Jesus's cloak, right? <laughs> and actually what it is, is it's like his tzitzit, it's the fringes of his garment, which, which Jews are commanded to wear in the book of Numbers. Uh, but what's so frustrating to me about that is that later, like in Matthew 23, for example, when uh, Jesus is like censuring the Pharisees, like they wear tzitzit, like then the word for tzitzit gets used. So it's trying, it's almost like the translation mm. is setting it up. Like the Pharisees are the one who are doing these, you know, very ingrained Jewish practices then and now, and Jesus is wearing a cloak, but really in the Greek, it's the exact same word. And so I think the translation issues are, are, are tricky and can very easily obscure mm. these connections um, along with the way that the Pharisees, for example, have gotten played out in Christian theology. You know, if Judaism becomes a sort of foil for Christianity, like legalism is like a dirty word in, in Christian circles, at least a lot of those that I've been a part of. Um, and I really want to poke at that. Like, I want to say, you know, law is this sort of bad Greek translation of the Hebrew word Torah, which means like teaching. And it's this very rich way of life that God has um, ushered the Jewish people into as a way to disclose God in the world. So there's a lot of unlearning, I think, that needs to take place. Like when we sort of encounter the Pharisees in the Gospels, like what's our first reaction? I think it's like they're they're kind of the bad guys. Um, they're the opponents. They're the ones who who um, you know block Jesus's ministry and and reject him in all of these ways. And I think that's a that's a really in my mind a really problematic read. Um, and and so coming back. Uh, to that Matthew 9 passage, um, I also think it's really important to know something about uh, the Jewish ritual purity system. So there's a fabulous book out there by New Testament scholar Matt Thiessen uh, called Jesus and the Forces of Death, which is such an important mm -hmm. book in terms of uh, showing how Jesus continued to uphold and live within this system of Old Testament purity, even while he's introducing something radically new 
But I think it's one of those aspects of the Old Testament where we just don't know quite what to do with it. And so it's very easy to slide into this thinking of like, well, out with the old, in with the new. Like clearly Jesus didn't really care about that like weird, you know, stuff that we don't totally understand. And I think Matt Thiessen does such a good job of showing like, no, he does care about it. And if we really want to understand the gospels and what Jesus's ministry is all about, like we actually have to understand this framework that Jesus was living within. So, so um, those are a few thoughts on, on the question that you asked. I found myself reading um, as, as I was reading your book, there's so much that seems to pop up in terms of, yeah, the unlearning of like, oh, right. Because as I think about this, I have this image in my head of the Pharisees being these like really jerk guys who are just trying mm-hmm. to like squish the little man and like they're <laughs> awful people. And, and then, you know, you start to realize like, oh, actually it's probably a lot more like me. And, and even seeing their, their passion to, to uphold this way of life. That's like mm-hmm. been mm-hmm. everything to them. So mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I feel like you, you know, one of the themes of your book is that Jesus's Jewish Jewish context is it's indispensable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it is at the core of his message. So can you say a little more about that too? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think so often, and this is the subtitle of the book is a journey into the Jewishness of the gospel. And on one sense, uh, the book is sort of a meditation on how the gospel that we preach has wandered so far away from any connection to God's ongoing covenant with the people of Israel. Like, right. I mean, in, in Christian circles, how often do we preach the gospel in a way that, that really honors or highlights or centralizes God's covenant with Israel? Like it's, it's not super relevant, at least in sort of gospel preaching that I've heard over the years. Um, and I think that's a, I think that's a real, um, I think it's kind of a hole in the gospel that we preach. And so I would want to say in order to understand the gospel, we have to like we really have to understand the story of God and his covenant people, the people of Israel throughout the Old Testaments that we read. And the Old Testament is not like some extended illustration of what didn't work, you know, and then then we needed Jesus because all of that was sort of a waste of time or something. Um, I think what we see in the Old Testament is that God calls the people of Israel to be his covenant people. And there's always these inklings uh, that that covenant peoplehood will one day flow beyond just this specific people. And it's a tricky narrative in the Old Testament because you also have this ongoing hostility between Israel and the nations, Israel and the nations. Like those are these two categories that sort of structure the Old Testament. And and, and there's this ongoing hostility between them. So it's the nations who are dragging Israel into idolatry. It's the nations who are fighting over the land with Israel. And so there's this notion that someday that hostility will be resolved. And so you, you have this really amazing language in like the prophetic texts where, um, you know, I- Egypt and Assyria will be alongside Israel as like, the, and, and that's so, and it's such an unbelievable passage in Isaiah, given who Israel and Egypt are in the Old Testament, right? Like they're the worst of the worst. And yet there's this notion that someday they will be alongside Israel as like the covenant people of God. And so I think once we have that narrative uh, clear, it, it begins to be so, um, so incredible what Jesus is actually doing in the New Testament, which is he is the vehicle by which God's covenant extends to the nations. So all of a sudden, you have this issue of Gentile inclusion, where 
Gentiles are welcomed into covenant relationship with the God of Israel alongside the people of Israel. Um, and, and it's interesting, I mean, even in the Gospels, this isn't such a theme, right? Jesus is primarily coming to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the Gospels. This is much more what we see in the book of Acts, in Paul's letters. And then there's all these questions about like, well, how do we do this thing? Like, how do Jews and Gentiles together worship the God of Israel? And it's not a straightforward question. And I would argue from my perspective, this is very much of what Paul is struggling with. And, and, it's, and it's interesting when we kind of have lost that context coming back to that, like the Pharisees are like the worst, right? And, and what we lose is that Judaism has always been about debating about how to follow God. And that's what these controversies in the New Testament are. They're Jews arguing with Jews. It's an intra-Jewish debate. And we lose that when we, when we import sort of later Christian categories and we say, well, it's, no, it's like the Christians against the Jews. And that really lays the, the framework, unfortunately, for a very deep-seated Christian anti-Judaism and eventually Christian anti-Semitism, which is like this mm. whole shadow side of church history that is not often talked about. But I think it it stems, at least one of the places it stems from, is, is importing these later categories of Jews versus Christians into the New Testament that we read. Yeah, I, I, I love that idea of um, th this, this story doesn't just start with Jesus, it goes all the mm -hmm. way back. And those are not unimportant parts. Those mm -hmm. are actually, it's almost like God, uh, is there a time in history and a people uh, for which the just for instance the command to love your enemies would have landed more uh soundly in the world you know just mm -hmm. as they are have been oppressed and mm -hmm. have felt this, themselves against the nations mm -hmm. and here they are occupied and Jesus comes along mm -hmm. and he says actually here's what god wants mm -hmm. that it, it just amazes mm -hmm. me um I'm wondering, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast will be preaching on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I wonder, what would you say as you've listened to sermons, as you've, as you've preached and taught at different places, what are things that we should be aware of as communicators, mm -hmm. just in terms of potential Jewish listeners or mm -hmm. being sensitive? Uh, what are the blind spots? I mean, mm -hmm. one of them as you've pointed out, is Jesus's Jewish identity and, and how that's central to his core message. But what else? What else comes mm -hmm. up? What should be, mm -hmm. we be on the lookout for? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And I think what we were just speaking about a moment ago about this history, the history of hostility between Christians and Jews that has lasted for centuries. I mean, we could go back to the church fathers and find this very, um, just, just, unbelievably negative language against against Judaism and the Jewish people. And this is like maybe a century or two after, you know, the New Testament. And that that seed just really grows. So we could sort of fast forward to the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther, who is celebrated as this sort of great hero of, of the Christian church for good reason. But but again, the shadow side is that he was wildly anti-Semitic and he got more so as his life went on. So you know, my students are always shocked to discover this document on the Jews and their lies, which was written by Martin Luther and later, like just straight up appropriated by Hitler to 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 implement his his ideology in the Holocaust. Like he literally just drew from Martin Luther's theology like that should really rattle us. And I feel like this history 
um, is much more familiar to Jews than it is to Christians. Mm-hmm. So it's shocking to Christians sometimes to hear that for Jews, oftentimes the association that they have with Christianity is the Holocaust. And we mm-hmm. think that's crazy, right? Like, no way, Hitler was not a Christian. Like, Hitler was against everything that's, like, good and true in the world. And yet that's that's the Jewish perception. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be said about, um, again, uh, just just on one level, just the history between Jews and Christians. And mm-hmm. I think what um, what often happens in church settings is that without intentionally, like, hating Jews, God forbid, mm-hmm. um, sermons can perpetuate this kind of narrative with the, thing, the kinds of things we've already been talking about. So how we, how we d- describe the Pharisees in sermons, how we use the word legalism in sermons, the sort of dichotomies that often get played out between grace and law or freedom and bondage, or, you know, the, the, the way that, that we think about these categories, um, I think without even realizing it, Oftentimes we're employing this history that just sort of lives in us. It's like we swim in it um, where Judaism is the foil, right? Judaism is what was wrong. And and Jesus and Paul have come to like out with that. Like here's everything that's wrong with Judaism. And it's a particular biblical hermeneutic that sort of fuels this narrative. And I think we're living in a remarkable era where, you know, there's, there's the whole Paul within Judaism camp that's arguing that Paul never left Judaism. Paul was a Torah observant Jew for the, till the day that he died. And I think if we take that as our starting point, which these Paul within Judaism scholars do, um, we really have to wrestle with how to understand his letters. If we can't just say Judaism and that legalistic Old Testament were the problem, it forces us to, to, to sort of rethink the mm. categories that we've just inherited and, and like I said, I mean, I think in a worst case scenario, what's happening is that the churches are perpetuating this historical Christian anti-Judaism and, and in some ways, maybe even covert or overt anti-Semitism um, that has just plagued the history of the Christian church, again, mm-hmm. in ways that often aren't, aren't talked about. So I think um, being very careful about the language that we use and, 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 and what is that portraying about both Second Temple Judaism, the Judaism of Jesus' day? Um, and Judaism today. Like, I think, I think, you know, I, I went through seminary and I never took a class that covered this stuff. And so it's hard um, to sort of get at some of these questions. But from my perspective, they're really central in the gospel that we preach and, and, and the kind of disciples that we are creating um, because these things just so often get, get sort of baked in and then carried over from one context or one community to the next. Yeah, one of the things that I always, if I have any influence on a preacher at all, as they're preaching through the Gospels or even the rest of the New Testament, you know, uh, there's it's very easy for pastors to use language like the Jews opposed Jesus here, or the mm-hmm. Jews were this, or the mm-hmm. Jews. And I'm always telling them, but sometimes I'll text them right away, be like, stop saying the Jews, mm-hmm. say the religious leaders at that mm-hmm. time, or mm-hmm. this group of Pharisees was doing this. It's mm-hmm. not this entire people. And yes. you gotta be careful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were, yeah. they were the Jews also, you know, like yes. that's the exact kind of language I'm talking about that just gets used without thinking about it a second time. Mm-hmm. And yet it's really, I think, kind of problematic language in that it perpetuates these yeah. really problematic categories and um, dichotomies that that are so mm-hmm. prevalent in Christian theology. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I feel like in the other part of the conversation is you have you have some people who have, have been using that language, you know, yes. the Jews and the, you know, mm-hmm. they did this and this and this, and essentially sowing anti-Semitism 
with that, with knowing it without knowing it. Mm-hmm. And then you have like the other side where it's like, you have a bunch of, um, you know, Christians or, you know, who are saying, well, we need to get more in touch with our Judaism. And so let's start having all the feasts. Let's start mm-hmm. doing all this. And mm-hmm. like, is it, I mean, does the pendulum swing both ways? Like, is there a healthy medium in terms of like, if you were going to plan a church tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what, what, what does it look like for folks that did not, you know, that do not have Jewish, any kind of Jewishness mm-hmm. in us or any kind of ethnic mm-hmm. background in that? How do we really begin to um, understand and maybe even enter into it? Is it we have to go full mm-hmm. bore? Is it uh, maybe just mm-hmm. a little bit? What does that mm-hmm. look like? Yeah, it's a really complicated question, but I think it is like the natural next step to what we're talking about. Because if the if the goal is not to be sort of anti-Judaism, even in a covert way, what is the goal, right? What does it look like for Christians to engage in these kinds of things in healthy ways? And it's actually, I mean, I, I feel like there's five different directions I could go with that question. And it is a common question that's coming up as people are reading Finding Messiah, because the, the, the natural next thing is like, so what? Like, what do we do? Do we start like, practicing the Jewish Sabbath? Do we start having Passover seders? Um, and, and, and I think that, um, I don't think there's an easy, easy set of, it's easy set of answers there. And, and, and I actually, I mean, he's, here's like maybe a little teaser. I, I hope that my next book will delve into this exact question. It's like, what now, what, so what, what are Christians to do with this kind of thing? Because, you know, there's also the issue of like appropriation, which, um, mm-hmm. which is, which is in some ways like another act of, um, I don't want to use the word violence. That's a little bit too strong, but it's it's an act of disrespect towards the Jewish community, right? So so a lot of Jews are really frustrated by Christians who are like holding these Passover seders that have, uh, and that's just to use an example, that have sort of nothing to do with the Passover story or what Passover has been about for the Jewish people mm-hmm. for centuries. Um, and so there's there's a lot of different perspectives on this, and 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 I hope to sort of dive into them because I don't think that there's anything out there really, um, you know, addressing this question. Um, but one of the things that I think everybody can do um, is just like get to know Jews. Do you know what I'm saying? Like reach out to the rabbi in your town. The, the, there's a really neat connection that has formed in our town between the like Orthodox Jewish rabbi and and the pastors of, of like the largest evangelical church in our town. And it's so neat just to see that like living, breathing relationship for the sake of relationship. And I would say that the pastor who I'm speaking of would probably say that his understanding of scriptures has been shaped by his engagement with this rabbi. So, um, you know, we can talk a lot about theological categories and we can talk a lot about practices and those are all so worthy to talk about. But I also want to say like, let's just forge relationships between Christians and Jews. Like, I think there's so much healing um, that comes through that. And there's so much uh, negative impact of sort of speaking of the other in their absence, right? Like how many Christians are friends with Jews, actually no living, breathing Jews today. Um, and I think that's, that's a really, that's a really good start and all the other stuff we can certainly talk about. And I think it's a little bit complicated in terms of the answers to those questions, because I do think that it's, it's, um, I don't think it's ideal. I'm certainly not going to say that Christians ought to be taking on Jewish practices, but what I, what I do want to say is that Christians ought to be forming their understanding of Christianity and Christian discipleship in conversation with um, you know, some of these main issues, the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity and how that forever influenced, you know, especially Western Christianity and how it's gotten sort of packaged mm-hmm. and exported and explained and understood. Um, so there's, so there is like a, um, 
you know, a, a, a learning about these things and, and, and letting them influence the way that we understand the gospel. And I think, you know, being in relationship with Jews is only going to help us along the way. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. It remind uh, we we interviewed Marty Solomon maybe two or three years ago, mm -hmm. and I saw that he's one of the guys that endorses the book. And I mm -hmm. really feel like he has helped so much. And uh, there's a lot of folks in our church, in my church particularly, that I've been listening mm -hmm. to him over the years and just mm -hmm. seeing seeing how these stories connect and ha having more of a uh, having a more a deeper understanding of how the scripture is, what the scripture is from a Jewish perspective really does. It changes everything. But the one thing I really want to, I, I wanted to read something that you wrote that I thought just, it resonated deeply with me. And I'd love to hear you kind of talk about it specifically mm -hmm. as uh, in thinking about the Shabbat and the end of it. But you said, while Western Christianity often has us living out of our faith in a way that bifurcates our bodies and our spirits, this division is completely foreign to a Hebraic worldview. Judaism has always been an embodied spirituality where we live out our faith through our bodies, not in some kind of war against them. Indeed, faith is that faith is what Jews see and hear and also eat, don't eat, wear, recite, declare, and on the holiday of Sukkot, shake. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to hear you. You talked a lot about um, the end of Shabbat and the way that mm -hmm. the bodies are engaged. Can you kind of dip our toes into that a little bit mm -hmm. and just the mm -hmm. shaping practice that that is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the most kind of clear and stark areas where we could contrast at least Western Christianity or certain strands of Western Christianity with Judaism. I mean, Judaism has always been an embodied religion. I mean, that's what Torah is about. It's about what we do and don't do with our bodies. It's about what we do and don't do mm -hmm. with our resources. It's about how we structure our time. Um, and so it's very embodied and, and, and Judaism has not, and it has not had historically the same ambivalence towards our bodies that Christianity has had. And much of this comes from, again, the parting of the ways where Christianity, uh, in many ways kind of follows this Greek dualistic influence, um, that we see, you know, some of, I think in the new Testament, but it really, once, once you get sort of Christianity kind of unhi unhitching itself from Judaism, it just sort of carries the day. Um, and, and I think there's such a wide array of implications of um, it. Once we think that sort of our bodies are these like fleshly, sinful capsules that 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 drag us down, and the soul or the spirit is like the really important part of our beings. I mean, we could just play that out, right? Like, what is the common maybe evangelical conception of heaven? It's like finally being rid of these like yucky bodies and floating around as spirits, um, which I which I think kind of undermines the resurrection of Jesus. Like, why did Jesus need to bodily resurrect if the whole point is to like be rid of our bodies? So there's some, like we could easily poke holes in that. And yet it's become so common. I think, again, especially in Western Christianity, I think it influences um, all kinds of things. And it, and I think it also um, has taken us away from, from the kind, and not in all circumstances, but in many circumstances, the kind of embodied practices that ground Jewish spirituality and that I would argue ground Christian discipleship, right? Just sort of the rote practices, the, 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 um, the, the pre-made decisions about what we are and what we are not going to do um, that I think really inform not only discipleship, but like what it means to be human and what it means to be a part of like God's good creation and what it means to imagine where this whole story is heading in the end, which is not disembodied spirits, but new creation. You know, I think it, I think it very much informs what we're supposed to be doing. Like we're not just, you know, 
polishing the China on the Titanic, we're actually building into mm-hmm. the kingdom, like the coming of the kingdom. It, it, I think it speaks to Christian vocation. I think it speaks to, to what happens when we die. I think it speaks to, uh, again, Christian discipleship. I think it's such a central um, piece that, again, I mean, maybe there's other reasons as well that that's fallen out of, of Christian discipleship, but I think this divorce from Judaism is a very strong one of them. And I think that the more that Christians can be exposed to sort of these practices in Judaism mm-hmm. and with an open mind, not just like, well, look at those Jews doing the same things over and over again, there's, you know, whatever, like legalism, right? Um, there's yeah. actually something quite beautiful to be found in that. And I think that there's these rhythms that God has given us um, and Sabbath being one of them that help us to like be fully human. It sounds like you have in uh, discovering the the Jewishness of Jesus and in rethinking this schism and trying to heal it, you have found a, a really rich way of life. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering for you where the tension, just personally, where the tension points are as you've tried to flesh that out, mm-hmm. uh, maybe with one foot in Judaism and one in Christianity, that's mm-hmm. probably not a great way mm-hmm. of describing it. But, you know, as the two mm-hmm. worlds do occasionally collide, where is it for you that you found the, the most difficulty? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think, you know, there's there's it hasn't been an easy road for me. So there's mm-hmm. lots of difficulties that I could talk about. But I, I do think that's sort of an apt way to describe it as having, a, you know, a foot in the Christian world and a foot in the Jewish world which is not such an easy place to be, you know, I mean, there's, there's, I, I could, I could just, you know, go on and on about stories in which that decision or that, you know, identity of mine has just flat out been rejected by those mm-hmm. on both sides, like Christians who are saying, no, 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 Jen, Jesus came to do away with all that law stuff. Like, what are you doing? And Jews who are saying like, you're not a real Jew anymore. Like that's, that's sort of the hostility that we're talking about historically between these two communities. I mean, you know, for example, it's very difficult for Jewish followers of Jesus to like get citizenship in the state of Israel. It's it's a real issue. Um, and 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 I think just more like day-to-day kind of misunderstanding and isolation to some extent. It's hard to sort of live on this bridge that crumbled a long time ago and that I'm saying, no, 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 like there's something really significant about this. Um, and so for me, it's been really, really meaningful to. Um, to be married to someone who's also a Messianic Jew and who kind of existentially like gets this tension that we live within. And, 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 you know, we, we have very close ties with the local Christian church and we have very close ties with the local Jewish community. And those are very separate from each other. Um, But the, somehow the fact that our little family is kind of all in this together is very encouraging. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, I, I talk in the book about an organization called Yachad B'Yeshua, which is Together in Jesus. Um, and it's this group of Jewish followers of Jesus from all across the ecclesial spectrum. So not just people who self-identify as Messianic Jews, but like, you know, Baptist Jews and Catholic Jews and Eastern Orthodox Jews and Jews who, you know, live in the mainstream Jewish world, all kind of coming together from across the globe, trying to to, to do this thing together. And for me, that has just been um, such, and Marty Solomon actually is a member of this community. So he's, he's kind of in there with the rest of us trying to figure out like, how do we negotiate these boundaries that have just wanted nothing to, you know, these communities that have wanted nothing to do with themselves mm-hmm. over the century. So, um, and it is, I mean, it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's a challenge explaining these things to our kids, right? I mean, our kids are still very young, but it's, um, it's a bit daunting to think of raising them. And I, and I think this sort of goes back to, 
where I was in college. Like I just wanted to be like everybody else, you know, and I think it's taken me a couple decades to sort of finally embrace, like, I'm not going to be like everybody else. And it's not going to be so easy for me to just, you know, I'm an Anglican or I'm, you know, a Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian. Um, we, I, I feel like I've, I've come to embrace that. I live in, in a more, um, kind of hybridized complex, uh, you know, fraught with tension mm-hmm. sort of place than that. And it's taken me a long time to realize that it's actually through the tension and the struggle mm-hmm. and the isolation in many ways that I have like encountered God. Like I, I've come to see something very, very sort of precious about those things. Whereas I would say for a lot of years, I just kind of bucked against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely something about living out Torah or that embodied spirituality that pulls you out of the American mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. I just wish that there was something about Christianity Mm -hmm. that would do the same thing, or at least American Christianity, I should say, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting too, though, Bob, because like, even as I was um, reading about your, um, sorry, Jen, reading about your kind of foray into the Anglican church when you were at mm-hmm. Yale, it seemed like mm-hmm. it was, you know, the book of common prayer and the liturgy is, is it's like, it's getting there, right? Like it's mm-hmm. trying to get us into these rhythms, mm-hmm. but the rhythms are so much attached to what happens within the church and not necessarily what happens Mon, you know, Sunday through Saturday. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so much about those, spiritual practices that feel very mm. bifurcated, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're spiritual practices and there's work practice on Monday. But it seems like the way that I heard you talk, and even just in this conversation is, well, what if it began to meld together? Mm-hmm. And, and even like, that's maybe the hope of what, yeah, of, of what is to come for the church is the church mm-hmm. begins to heal some of these schisms, some of these things that mm-hmm. have been present for many, many years. Yeah, and I think it's important. I think that's a really good point. But I I also want to say very explicitly that what I'm not trying to do in the book or anything that I ever write or teach is like bash the church. Like that is the Mm. last thing that I want to do. Like what I actually want to do is like support the church. And and I want uh, like a robust affirmation of the church because what I'm, you know, I'm not one of these people who's saying like, oh, you know, Constantine was a pagan and Christmas is a pagan holiday. Like I'm, I'm not saying that. And, and I, and I, and I, I fear, I fear being misunderstood as saying, well, all Christians should sort of leave their denominations and sort of somehow take on Jewish Judaism and Jewish practices. Um, and that's not what I'm saying. I love the church. And to this day, like I love Anglican liturgy. I really do. I find it so incredible. And of course the thing about Judaism is that because Judaism has described itself over against Christianity there, like there's only negative things to say about Jesus within mm. sort of post biblical Jewish literature. So you can't find um, these really rich understandings of Jesus through a Jewish lens in, in Jewish tradition. <laughs> um, and so that's part of the problem of this, of this split, but, but, but I love, I mean, and I love the vineyard church. I, I became a believer in a vineyard church. And to this day, like vineyard theology has really deeply shaped my understanding of spirituality and and of the kingdom of God. Um, And yet I am troubled by what I perceive as this ongoing sort of blind spot in the church that comes from, you know, all the things that we've been talking about, perceiving Judaism in a particular way, reading our New Testaments and our Old Testaments in a particular way, you know, with regard to the Jewish people and God's covenant with Israel. 
And so what I would love to see is us as Christians in their denominations wrestling with this question. Like, what does it mean that God is still in covenant relationship with the Jewish people? Like, what does it mean to wrestle with the Christian notion of election within the broader notion of the election of Israel? Like, that's what I want to see. Um, at the same time, while I am like Christian tradition is beautiful. And I think it's so um, like spirit led. And I think the spirit of God has, has been involved in this process, even amidst the presence of human sin and schism um, and all these things. I think it's really important for me to sort of hold on to both sides of that. Like, yes, there's this shadow side of, of church history, but no, I am not willing to sort of throw out the creeds or whatever else like baby with the bathwater kind of thing. This this is such a fascinating conversation, Jen. And I'm just really grateful for your willingness to to hang out with us and to talk about these things that many of us have probably jotted down some notes as we've been sitting here listening. And I know there's a few books that I'm um that are up on my Amazon queue now, which I promise I was paying attention. Um, but we've been we've been having our we've been having our our guests leave us with a benediction or a blessing. And mm. um, could you leave us with a benediction or a blessing today? Mm, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would just say that, like, I bless all of you to be like agents of healing in the midst of a centuries long rift uh, between Jews and Christians and agents of healing in what I perceive to be the primal schism in the Christian community, which which was, you know, between Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus, you know, 1700 years ago. And so I just sort of bless you all to wrestle with the questions, to not be afraid of tensions and struggles in our faith. And, 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 and my prayer would be that those tensions and struggles for all of us would lead us closer to God, closer to one another, and closer to the very, you know, vocation that we have been commissioned with. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us on this episode of the Monday Morning Pastor. Our passion is to serve, partner with, and equip hungry pastors and kingdom leaders just like you. Have you ever considered engaging in pastoral or ministry coaching? We have a team of coaches at Kairos Partnerships available to serve you. If you want to know more, log on to our website at kairospartnerships.org for a free 30-minute coaching call to give it a test drive. Thanks again for listening. We're grateful you tuned into this episode. We'll catch you next week for another episode. God bless and bless God. Bless God.